0: Welcome to another episode of The Word Necromancer's podcast. I am K.A. Miltimore, and it is my pleasure to introduce today author Shauna Reppert, who writes fantasy and steampunk. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm really excited to chat with you because I'm, I'm interested in the genre of steampunk and kind of it's, evolution and people who write in the in that genre and um, kind of what inspires them. So I'm excited to have the chance to pick your brain a little bit on this. Great. So just so listeners know, you are the author of the Raven's Blood series, as well as a new series of Werewolves and Gaslight Mysteries, which just sounds awesome. I'm super excited um, to check that out. I'm starting to dabble a little bit in Gaslight myself, so um, I'm really curious to talk to you about that, but tell us a little bit about kind of how you got started in writing.
1: Um, I have wanted to be a writer for almost literally as long as my memory goes back. I I remember, you know, as soon as I found, figured out that, you know, people wrote those stories that were in my picture books that's what I wanted to do. I mean, before I even learned how to physically write, I was making my mother write down stories. Um, It's just always been a passion of mine. Um, And then I think I was like six or seven when my sister read The Hobbit to me. And that was when I got on the path of fantasy. Mm. And it's pretty much been pretty steady ever since.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. When did you publish your first work? um
1: may of 2013
0: and i know it's off the top of my head because i was
1: just thinking about it the other day um it was a a fantasy flash it was kind of marketed as fantasy romance which it arguably was i had written it as the traditional fantasy um and you know most fantasies there is a relationship involved in there well when the relationship is between two men it says. It becomes a bigger deal, and you know, it ends up getting shoveled into fantasy romance because you know, you have to warn your readers about that and all you know, oh, silliness. Um, see, but that was, yeah, yeah, that was the uh, first novel I published and the only novel I published with uh, with publisher.
0: Ah, okay. So, when did you start your Raven's Blood series? Um, I had been,
1: I'd started writing it about the time i was you know starting to market the stolen luck which was my debut novel because that's how you do it you know while you're marketing one novel you'd better be writing the next one Mm -hmm. and um i had pitched it to karina press which was my publisher um they were like yeah it's nice but can you write us another male male fantasy romance and I didn't have an objection to writing that, obviously, because my first book was that, but I didn't want to be, you know, typecast at Mm -hmm. that. So um, I agreed to write another um, novel in that genre, but at the same time, I was working on the urban fantasy and decided to put it out independently because that was, you know, the big change in, you know, because I saw the change coming up as a writer from don't ever publish indie or no one will touch you Too, oh well, yeah it's okay to publish indie to now I think it's really your best option as a writer personally um, but so I started putting that out under my own name or under my own you know, indie and then Karina went through some um, changes, they changed hands for one thing um, and they started going more towards a very different type of book than what I was willing to write. So I got another (laughs) publisher um, that was going to publish Where Light Meets Shadow, which was another fantasy, male-male fantasy romance. And um, we had editorial differences, to put it mildly, and I ended up uh, breaking the contract and walking Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and publishing it um, independently because I knew I could put out a better product than they were were going to put out. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when you you mention about kind of the evolution of, you know, indie publishing, self publishing, and and I totally agree with you that there used to be a pretty strong stigma on people that kind of went down that road. Um, yeah, and it's delightful to me that it really has seemed to have done a one eighty, and you see authors doing it for a variety of reasons. Um, some authors do both traditional and indie at the same time some kind of float back and forth between Um, I just think it's for me it's kind of the democratization of publishing right I mean you get the chance to get voices yeah voices you maybe wouldn't normally get to hear you know because there's so many I think stringent guidelines on kind of how traditional publishers can make money and so they have to focus on what will make money and um, that's always changing.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, and it's it's not yeah it's not all their fault too to be fair because there was a change in the tax laws so that um, and I don't understand all the complicated deals that basically made it you know because publishers used to be happy with having not ha- I mean obviously they were delirious that they could get a blockbuster in a week they were happy with the, an author that they, you know, that might take a little while to catch on. Mm-hmm. Now it's literally, if you don't, you know, if they don't see that you're going to earn out within a couple of weeks, I mean, they, that's a, that's a, a loss to them. And they're in it. I mean, they're in it to make money. There's nothing wrong with that. They have to make money. Mm-hmm. And so it, um, they don't have time to wait for the slow career build of, you know, maybe someone who isn't writing, you know, a book that's traditional, like that's like every other book out there with, mm-hmm. you know, sword fights and lots of sex and, you know, on all of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to be the lines are less blurry in traditional publishing on Right now, I think with indie publishing, you can see people doing more cross genre writing where it can kind of fit into one category, but it can kind of fit in another category. And I don't know that you see that as much in the traditional role. I mean, it's kind of like it needs to fit the market, right? Really squarely or, you know, they have a problem with that. So. So that's cool. That's very cool. So let's talk a little bit about Raven's Blood. So you how long is the series? How many books are in it now?
1: Um, there's four books out. I've just started the fifth.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: So So, yeah, I'm kind of trying to alternate um, Raven's Blood um, and Werewolves and Gaslight. Um, I did have a few um, standalones coming out in there too. Okay. so.
0: So how do you keep a series kind of fresh? Like by the fifth book... Are you getting tired of these characters? Are you wanting to kind of wrap things up? How do you keep it vibrant?
1: Well, I think if you have um, a good... I I prefer to write with a good cast of characters. So I have, you know, my protagonist and, and a few major characters, but then I also have a lot of... You know, I have a whole world, and they have friends, and they have... So there's that where you're working with you know it brings out a lot more possibilities and also um, if you have a really deep character just like a human being is evolving all the time I mean you know if you think of your life as a story there was one arc you know of my life well through high school I don't write YA but you know if you were writing you know there's one arc there then through college there's another arc then my marriage and my divorce was another arc, and you know, and and so there's always fresh things you can do. Your character, if you're writing it well, you will in one arc, but something it kind of overlaps or something new happening. Um, and also, it helps that I tend to write. Um, Raven's Blood. The first three books were kind of a assault they they kind of belong together as a solid arc they each could be read separately but there was an arc that went on with that with um Raven and his sort of love hate relationship with his his mentor um, who he had to help destroy basically um, and uh, but it it kind of is segueing into more of sort of an urban fantasy police procedural thing. And so with mysteries, it's great because you can always come up with a new villain. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there is a ton of crimes and tons of types of crimes and tons of ways that people do evil things to one another. And so that's fresh fodder Mm -hmm. all the time. And because I'm a person with strong opinions about lots of things in the world, Mm -hmm. I can always find things to write about.
0: (laughs) That's great. So did you plot kind of your series? Did you have kind of, I know in book one I'm going to do this, and then in two I'm going to do that? Or did it did each novel kind of evolve and and glue on to the next?
1: Well, for Raven's Blood, the first three novels, I really knew what that arc was going to be. From there, there were just different things I wanted to do. Um, There were things that I wanted the characters to experience and go through, and so the murder mystery is a setting for these, the character growth that is going on, and it's it's a journey. And mm-hmm. so I kind of knew that. I actually knew by the end of the first book, I had a pretty good idea of like what the next generation is going to be like, mm-hmm. and um, that. Ransley, uh, Ransley, Zachary Ravenscroft, has just been born. In the last novel, he was like a babe in arms. Mm-hmm. So, and I know what he's going to be like as a 20-year-old, and God help Raven. <laughs> I mean, he's, a, he's a good guy, but he's very different from, from Raven, and Raven is trying his very best to be a good father completely unlike his own father. Mm. And uh, it's a challenge because Ransley is very, very different mm. from, from Raven. In fact, the reason that there's a three names is, you know, it's the whole, you know, Ransley is Raven. Ravenclaw. You knock that off right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so for fans of the series, do you get a, a feedback that they want you to hurry up or, you know, they're asking for the next yeah. one. How do you kind of manage the pacing of when these are released?
1: Um. Well, they always want the next one. In fact, I had someone who was waiting for this book that was the the, the new book in the Werewolves and Gaslight series, and she was pushing for that, pushing for that. I hadn't even finished the. It had just gone to like final line edits, and so she's like, "What are you? You know, what are you doing? Why are you know?" I was like, well, It's in line edit." And she's like, great. So when's the next Raven's Blood coming out? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even gotten the first one, the last one you profing. I know. Um, but it's good. It is really good. It keeps me motivated. Um, I was trying for a two-book-a-year a schedule. Okay. Um, I've managed that for the first couple years of my career. And then I had... Um, I hate to whine about depression because a lot of people don't understand it, and it sounds like you know artistic, you know being an artiste. And but it is a real, it is a real disease. And um, I had some issues with my depression and anxiety, especially right after the last election. That um, last presidential election Mm -hmm. totally knocked me on my ass, as it did a lot of people. And um, until I kind of found a way to channel my anger into into my writing. And so even though there's a lot of things that are in common between what was happening in the world in the Victorian era and what is happening now in mm-hmm. terms of there was a, a movement towards you know, more liberal, more diversity, more pro-woman, more pro-science. And then there was a huge pushback going on and... You know, so I, I use a lot of that back and forth. Um, my will, you know, stand in for, for other minorities. Um, so you hear a lot of things that are being said about werewolves that will sound awfully familiar to anyone who is um, following LGBTQ mm-hmm. issues, for example.
0: That's so interesting to me that you say that because, um, and I don't usually get super political. I think anybody who reads my tweets kind of knows where I fall on that, on that spectrum. But um, the last presidential election is what actually got me motivated to write again. um, Yeah. And to publish, to go beyond kind of just, I'm going to write just because I need to get some stuff out of my system to, I want to get something out there. Um, and, And I've heard from other people whether they're writers or, you know, whatever um, they may do, that sometimes it is that, that social, um, you know, turmoil that kind of inspires people to do things and, and work through it, you know, in their own way. So yeah. I think you're in good company that way. A lot of people <laughs> t- have channeled their feelings one way or the other <laughs> um, yeah. in their art. And that's, um, and that's as it should be, I think. I think that's how art helps serve people in general. Um,
1: yes, I mean, that's been the whole, you know, whole history of it, really.
0: hmm absolutely. So, Werewolves and Gaslights, I saw that um, book two just came out, right? Moon Over London? Yes, yes. Yesterday was the release, official release day. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. Yeah. So, tell us, um, back up a little bit to book one, um, kind of uh-huh. where does the series start, and then kind of what... Uh, Coming attractions, do you see in book two for readers?
1: Well, um, the series, book one actually starts, it was actually kind of a prequel short story that was more um, of a romance, kind of, but there was a mystery element in it. And I was really intrigued with the characters. And so I started there. I originally thought my werewolf was going to be my protagonist, but when I started really working with the first novel I realized it was going to be my police inspector because he was the one who was really going through the biggest character arc um so in that book it starts out um Inspector Royston Jones um who is coming up through the Scotland Yard who's just made Detective um and he was kind of reluctantly promoted because he even though he's comes from um, a very, you know, basically lower working class poverty background. His mother had been a governess at one time in, um, you know, in the houses of wealthy families. And so he has the education of gentry. Mm. And so they kind of had to promote him because they needed someone who could translate. And of course, they couldn't let the ambassador talk to a mere constable, Um, but there's a lot of, um, he's kind of coming up against a lot of uh, pushback in the yard in that book, and also because he is the bastard son of Gentry, that's how his mother lost her position. Um, She was seduced by the eldest son of a family where she was a governess, Mm. And that was the Royston family. So his first name is actually his biological father's surname. Mm. Because the family basically let her know that they would make her life very difficult if she tried to give the baby the father's surname. So she being kind of plucky, naive in a lot of ways, but rather plucky, um, gave it to him as his first name. Mm. Which was actually a common... Thing that was done sometimes in the Victorian era.
2: Mm.
1: Not that it, among bastards, but, you know, that often mm-hmm. a child would have the, the first name would be the surname from, you know, someone in the in family history. Mm-hmm. And so he's got that, you know, and, and the black marks of bastardry is really a big thing in the Victorian era, especially as he is moving among the upper class. Um, it's, you know, it's very hard. And as his investigations take him into the upper class and some of the uh, suspects are upper middle class, there's a lot of, you know, you can't go there, you can't say this, you can't ask these questions.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: the whole time he's dealing with um, the, a very, um, basically kind of a ripper-like murder uh, series a series of murders is a serial killer on his hands and so a lot of emotional pressure from him he takes his job very seriously and these women are dying horribly and he wants to stop that um, one of the women is someone he has a passing acquaintance with kind of a would-be sweetheart um so that makes it very personal
0: mm. How much research did you have to do about Victorian London to feel like you could really write about the era? Lots and lots.
1: Hmm. Um, it is a lot, I mean, it's one of the earliest eras though in which there is a lot of first source material, um, which is is wonderful. You not only have novels written in that area, era, era, which you do for Regency as well but there's a lot of newspapers that have actually been preserved and are now available online. So some of the things I was able to look at are collections of news stories from that era to get a feeling of the people's attitude, Um, just weird little glitches that, or weird little things to throw in there, kind of, um, uh, what do they call them, Easter eggs for people who, who know... A lot about um, Victorian London, like the one bar that shows up, Fishtails, is a real bar in Victorian London. Now they did not have automatons entertaining the, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the customers, but it was a very real bar, and there was the, the owner was a very real character mm. in all sense of that word. Hmm. Um, yeah, and you really, you definitely have to know at the very least. What the social mores are What the conventions are um, You know How one becomes a police inspector And there's a difference between What the law is And what is really the law mm-hmm. Especially you know the, In that era, people don't realize That that was the first That was the beginning of the professional Police force um, The Bobby, uh, Robert Also known as the Peelers Were you know legislated in by Robert Peel And it was a revolutionary concept and a lot of people were not so sure that they liked this idea. Hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, And Moon Over London, I was very fortunate. um, I have someone who I actually credited in my um, acknowledgement who is a um, lover of language and is, you know, British. So she was initially helping me with the Brit picking the novel, but she also knew a lot about the historical differences in language and in, in cultures and conventions, so she really helped me out in places where I needed a little little clearing up. So.
0: That's so helpful to have another, you know, set of eyes and someone coming from maybe a, a slightly different skill set, right, that they can kind of chime in on, yeah. on your work and say, oh, you got it here, or oh, no, you need to tweak that. Um, that kind of yeah. thing is invaluable to have that kind of resource, I think. Oh, so, yeah. So it, is there an element of steampunk in this series, or is that, is it yeah. more just a straight historical fiction?
1: It's, well, it's definitely fantasy because there weren't any werewolves running around <laughs> London that we know of. That we know
0: of. <laughs> that we know of. And <laughs> the caveat and there. in my world, yes,
1: yeah, in <laughs> my world, the werewolves are very, I mean, you People know that there are werewolves around, that they are, you know, blinking through the streets. But it's very much they're like the underclass. So they're sort of treated like, um, kind of the the lower economic classes in our country are to a great degree, or kind of how people of, I mean, it's changing in most places slowly, thank God. But how, you know, this country used to treat people of, of color. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where the China, China, China could, China people, could, Chinese people, China, it was mostly men because they tried to avoid bringing women in. Um, you know, the Chinamen could come in and work on our railroads, but, you know, they couldn't stay here. They couldn't own businesses. They couldn't own land. They couldn't get married. Um, you know, that very much, it's a second class. The only difference is that that you can become a werewolf. Mm. So my werewolf character, you know, the main werewolf in in the book, um, is actually a clandestine werewolf. He's upper class, and he was bitten as a child. His parents managed to hide his status, and he, you know, managed to keep that hidden. In fact, some of the conflict in the first book was um, Royston's that this man's a werewolf, and um, he, you know, and uh, Richard Bandon, the werewolf Bandon, saw Royston coming to him for help. You know, basically, he uses that tracker dog,
2: um,
1: help as a threat to expose him, and he, and especially his his lady, who is tougher, is like tougher than both men put together, and they're pretty tough. <laughs> Um, you know, came back with a threat back, and it was uh, a bit of back and forth there before they decided, you know, Bandon decided that, you know, that that, that basically bringing the serial killer to justice was more important than, you know, protecting his secret, even though he's managed to protect it so far.
0: Mm. So for readers who aren't really familiar with the term gaslight or steampunk, do you have a definition for those that works for you?
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of overlap. Steampunk was sort of the first um, the first uh, genre that the gas lab fantasy is almost the subgenre. So I, how I define it to people who are outside of speculative fiction is it's sort of the Victorian era if, um, if steam technology and clockwork technology was way cooler than it really was. <laughs> so you... <laughs> And you did have steam cars in the very early, in, you know, in, in Victorian times, a lot earlier than people realized. There wasn't, it wasn't common, but they were experimental models were coming out. Mm. So in my book, they're just a lot more common. Um, steampunk, people tend to define it as science fiction. To me, that doesn't make sense. I've always called it type of fantasy Um, But it is true, the overall, a lot of the books in the genre have the science fiction, um, thinking of the word, um, like the science fiction feel where technology is the main character, Mm -hmm. and it's more about ideas and people, whereas I think fantasy tends to be more about people than ideas. So when the term lamp fantasy came out, I believe really embraced that term, but I still call my work steam pumps because more people are familiar with the term. And I mean, my, my female lead um, is an alchemist and she also tinkers with anything that can be tinkered with mm. and is very, um, very outspoken and is also... And she practices alchemy in glamoured uh, to be a male um, because you know she couldn't get anywhere with her career as a woman.
0: Mm. I love the the crossover between kind of that the historical reality, kind of of like what it was like for women in the era and then giving her a solution in this kind of mm. fantasy uh, mold. I think that's that's yeah. that's a cool. Um, I don't know what the wars on vacation, but uh, kind of this little dream that you can go down and say, okay, if yeah. I was alive in this, in this time and I had these constraints, what is a tool I could have that would be really cool and yeah. I could, you know, get outside yeah. of that box. So that, that to me is what's fun about the fiction, about the genre is you yeah. can uh, kind of do a what if, right, and explore different, different things. Who would you say yeah. are kind of the big influencers in this genre?
1: Wow. Um, It's hard to say because I hate to, I mean, it sounds weird, but a lot of the people who are the big names in the genre are not um, the ones that I necessarily think my writing is like. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the early, um, there's a lot of debate about what is steampunk? When did it start? How is it defined? Um, One of the early books that could be considered an alternate universe steampunk um, would be Ellen Kushner's uh, Swordpoint and the, uh, the books that follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just mostly that she's her, it's, it's a completely different world, but it's taking place in a world that is very like Victorian England or mm-hmm. Victorian. Um, you know that the names are different, the powers are different, but it's it's very like that. Mm. Um, and I it's also really more gas. I mean, even it's really, even though it's a very early novel, I would actually put it now that there is the term gaslamp fantasy as gaslamp fantasy. It's more about the people, and um, there's not a lot of the technology stuff that you see in the later ones. Like Sherry Priest is one of the really big names. I, you know, and if you like the sci- the, the really science driven, idea driven, as opposed to character driven novels, um, she's a good one to go to. Not to my taste, but not to say that, you know, there's anything wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Devin Monk is another local to the Pacific Northwest, which is really exciting. Um, and she writes much more in the way that I write in terms of its alternate universe um, it's very more character driven so I, I've read some of her stuff I really like her stuff
0: I love character driven um, novels those, those okay. are those are always my favorite character driven versus kind of like yes. big idea or big plot I mean those things are important but for me it's all about the character so that would be yes. on my short list of things to read if it's character driven yeah <laughs> yeah so, what other media um, would you say yeah, then? Oh, sorry, I was just going to. I was going to say, what other media do you find then that also kind of inspires in this genre? Are you a fan of kind of the movie versions of Steve, steampunk, or do you think they um, not they water it down too much?
1: I, I think it's fine. I think it's fun. Um, a lot of you know people. There's a lot of um, feeling in the science fiction fantasy community of you know, how dare they take our ideas and play with them and it's not really steampunk, so how dare they have the steampunk things. I find it's fun mm. to to see the little steampunk elements coming in. Um, I haven't seen I see a lot of movies, not because I have a problem with movies, movies are great. It's stories are stories, whether they're on the screen or in a book. Just the, you know, finding the time, but Um, you see little steampunk elements in, um, like, for example, the... Rod... um, RDJ's... Sherlock series, the one Mm. where he's playing Mm -hmm. Sherlock. Yes. Um, As a Holmesian, I have some issues with some of the portrayals that I have to take a step back from. Mm. Um, But for for the steampunk... um, era or from steampunk approach it's, it's a lot of fun there's a lot of steampunk elements with his little inventions that he's working with and i think i might really think if, if arthur conan doyle knew about steampunk he probably would be writing steampunk because
0: <laughs> i love that you know
1: sherlock holmes <laughs> is technologically advanced over his peers and really over you know what was happening scientifically at the time that arthur conan doyle was writing mm-hmm. so yeah i enjoyed those those um, movies um, I just love the, the 13th Doctor I've Lost Count of Doctors the, uh, Peter Capaldi Doctor ah, yes, and his TARDIS is just so steampunk it's an aesthetic as well as being a, a genre of literature and I just love that steampunky look to the TARDIS uh, you know I just love I love steampunk elements popping up Um, Some people get really, really angry about it. I kind of think unless you're, you know, hurting a community, like, you know, I mean, I have a problem in fiction and film that is um, negative toward, you know, stereotyping groups that actually exist and, you know, using them in, in a way that's not appropriate. But short of that, I figure, you know, have fun.
0: I'm totally with that. I mean, I think as long as you're not, you know, being disrespectful to the group that that really embraces this, um, there's nothing wrong in my mind with kind of yeah. introducing people to it, right? And, and I've heard that before that yeah. sometimes diehard fans of a certain genre, even if it's like game players, gamers, I think sometimes are Hell that yeah. way, or you know, there's all these different kind of subgroups and they get really possessive about the content. And if it gets yeah. kind of introduced to everybody else, they they don't like that. Um, but how else do people learn about it if you don't yeah. kind of bring them into the big tent, right, and introduce them to something yeah. cool? If they see it in a... Will Smith movie or something I remember a movie that I don't know 10 years back or whatever where it was a steam oh,
1: yeah. total weird steampunk
0: weird, weird yeah the Wild, Wild West, Wild West. That, that genre is actually Weird West which is a subgenre
1: of steampunk but
0: right. yeah. so if nobody I mean and it wasn't my cup of tea and I like steampunk but it wasn't my cup of tea but yeah. if but if no one had ever seen it or knew the concepts and then suddenly they go to the theater because it's yeah. a Will Smith movie and they're like hey that's cool I'm going to check it out Maybe you find somebody now, they've got a new yeah. passion, right? So that's the way I look I mean, at how it.
1: I yeah, how I got into it is I was going to science fiction and fantasy, yeah, you know, cons forever, and I was at this con, and there were all these people dressed in these, like, really interesting outfits, and I was like, that's cool, what's that about?
0: Right. And was <laughs>
1: trying to break into fantasy and and getting really frustrated about it because this was back in the day when you really, you know, traditional publishing was really where you wanted to be. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And I went to a panel on what is steampunk because I heard that's what that, what that cool stuff was happening and I wanted to know more about it. And um, um, an author and editor, Phyllis Irene Bradford, was um, on this panel and she was, you know, they were talking about what's steampunk, what's not steampunk. And one of the things she said is, you know, we're um, the small press that operates in our area was getting together an anthology and we're finding, you know, we're finding trouble getting enough professional quality submissions. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, I could write one of those. And I did. And it, like right off the bat it was my first anthology sale and I'd been trying to break into fantasy forever and had some small zine sales mm. and I was like I like steampunk
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful and I love the idea of kind of getting your feet in through an anthology I think that's a great method even for yes. people doing indie yeah. publishing right you may not be fully ready to invest the time or do the research in how mm-hmm. to look, launch your own novel but you can sure get involved in an anthology and it helps get your feet wet.
1: Yeah, it also, I think, gives you a lot of, um, first of all, kind of cred when you're trying to launch your novel and also a lot of, it's a way to know, yes, I'm really ready for big time. I'm really ready to to put out the novels because that's one thing I think is a problem with indie for people who are coming into it in this brand new Brave World where, you know, some people's entire careers are indie, is it's hard to know you as an individual, am I ready? And I feel incredibly grateful to Karina that I, you know, since I sold a novel, um, it basically said, yes, I am. And I also had um, a number of people I really respect in the industry, um, Elizabeth Lyon, Eric Switchy, telling me, yeah, you're, you're ready, go for it.
0: So. Oh, that peer feedback is so critical, I think. Yes. And I yeah. think in some ways it's it's easier and maybe also harder, depending on how you look at it, to get that feedback. I know if you're kind of active in the social media sphere, like on the Twitter writing community or in a group like we are in the yeah. Northwest Independent Writers Association, you can find people to have that peer interaction with but if you don't if you don't know that or that's not yeah. something you're comfortable doing then I think writing can feel pretty yeah. isolating and it's hard to find those peers to help kind of flesh things out yeah
1: and you. it's also hard to judge whose opinion to take um, one of the paths that I took is well I was trying again to professionally publish so I was going to uh, well, I'm at writers conferences and pitching but they also have You know, manuscript workshops where you can submit your manuscript and you're basically paying for feedback. And um, Elizabeth Lyon, who is also local and has written a number of very well regarded books on not only writing but on publishing, um, I paid for a manuscript analysis and she said, Yes, this is a sound journeyman, you know, manuscript. It's obviously you've got. You know, work ahead of you, but this is ready to go. This is, this is, your writing is of, of a professional quality. And that novel that she was looking at, part of, became The Stolen Luck, which is my debut novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whenever possible, I, I tell people, you know, if you can, and it's hard because it is money. Mm-hmm. It's, it's money. And I believe me, I understand not having the money. Um, but if it's really something you want to do professionally, it is worth it to start workshopping with names that people recognize, names that are respected in the industry, and they'll tell you when you're ready to go.
0: Mm-hmm. They will. That's good advice, because it is, there are so many people with something to say. Um, I think sometimes you can wonder, okay, who do I trust? <laughs> Where do I turn to? You know, who's, whose review should I Believe and not believe, and so yeah. Sometimes it can be a lot of voices coming at you. Yeah, and finding and you
1: can your way. Yeah, and you can hurt your career. I mean, you can always come back from anything, but it does hurt your career if you put a, a book out that you're when you're not. When that book is not ready to be a professional book. I mean, I thank the gods that some of the novels I submitted, in all seriousness and all intent to, you know, publishers back in the day did not get picked up. Hmm. And some of them got, this is, tell me how far back, this is when we were back when we were still submitting paper manuscripts. I mean, some of them got read partway through, you could tell by the dog ear was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them got read about a good third of the way through on a hundred thousand word manuscript when, I mean, if you get past the first page, Mm-hmm. You're already doing better than like probably ninety percent of the manuscripts across their their desk, but I am very grateful that they did not get picked up, uh, you know, because they were not ready. Mm.
0: I I agree with that. I think that's the double edged sword of indie press. Sometimes is you, your enthusiasm yeah. to get your work out there can kind of you know force your hand a little prematurely. So. Yes, yeah. that's something to definitely keep in mind and and get that external yeah. feedback, right, to help you yeah. cut through like, OK, is it really ready or am I just thinking it's yeah. ready? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, get feedback from people who are in the industry because, um, you know, your fan group. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, there, there can be different levels of of experience or expertise as a reader. And so it's good to, I think, get a good, a nice cross-section of people who maybe are more on the, and nothing wrong with fanfic, but more on the fanfic spectrum of reading and kind of what they expect on those sorts of books. And then something that's, you know, a little bit on the other end of the spectrum um, and everything in between. So it's nice to get readers who both Mm -hmm. know your genre and also maybe don't. 'Cause then you can, you know, get some feedback from eyes yeah. that aren't expecting certain, you know, tropes or conventions or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I think if your book stands up to people who are outside the genre, that's a whole new level of well, I think quality, but that's just me because I have a lot of people who read my work that don't necessarily read in the genre and they still enjoy the work. Or like I have I have works that have won awards In different Um, Mm subgenres, my stolen my first debut novel um, won a a national award in um, original world fantasy, and then also won an so not fantasy romance, and then also won an effie, which was a you know which is a pretty important award for indie authors at the time. They no longer do the um, effie awards, but it won an effie award. Um, in fantasy romance, mm. which means it stood up in both genres. And Hunt by Moonlight, even though I wouldn't shelve it as historical fantasy per se, the one um, contest I entered that was the closest you know, genre to what it was, and it won a silver, which is a second place, in, um, in historical
0: fantasy. That's great. That, that's really yeah. cool that that gives you some validation too right that you know you're doing the right thing so that's yeah that's very cool yeah so kind of turning a little bit toward marketing I always like to ask authors kind of what what huh. has worked for them what maybe didn't work for them that they can pass along their tidbits oh, kind that's- of, <laughs> what do you what do you advice do you give to other writers
1: oh yeah that's um well, I'm still learning myself I mean if I nailed the marketing the way I wanted to, I would be quitting my day job and doing this for a living, which I have not achieved yet.
0: Yeah, me so either. That.
1: <laughs> um, but And also, this marketing, I, it's not just shooting at a moving target, it's like being on a galloping course and shooting at a target that's also moving. <laughs> um, and what advice is valid to say is probably not going to be the same as next year. Mm. Um, one of the, um, the big things that is, um, well, first of all, let me drop some names because there's just, I mean, it's, it's like one of these things you could have a whole course on. Um, but Mark Dawson, I took an online course from him. Um, it's expensive, but worth it. And also he has a lot of great free, contact, um, free content um, which is why I ended up buying the course, which is why people put out free content. But um, the, there's a lot of value in this free content as well. And if you just Google Mark Dawson self-publishing, um, that will help. Um, obviously, let's see, BookBub. If you can get a BookBub, that is like the holy grail of marketing. But it's getting to be kind of like getting traditional publishing. A lot of traditional publishers are now submitting books to that. And for Book Pub I'm talking about getting the featured um, featured deal
2: mm-hmm. in Book
1: Club, Uh which I actually managed to get not all markets one, but I got one for other markets, which means someone they liked better um, took the American um, audience, which is the biggest one, obviously, but did not want the other market did not want to pay for all markets so they offered the other markets to me and i took it it's cheaper than mm-hmm. doing the all markets and um it, it was probably the single most boost from one source of advertising that i've ever done mm. but i've been trying to get into bookbub for years i given up and then I talked to a friend who who got scored a few b book deal, feature deals and he said just keep submitting. Keep submitting. And it is expensive as anything. But it really is an investment. it's it, you know, even beyond the the period of time when I you know, and immediately after that that advertisement came in, I'm still that was like in May, I think. And I'm still, my numbers are still up from that and it, it lifted not only the book I was advertising but all of my work.
0: Wow. Um, so yeah. money money well spent, you would say. Definitely. And I mean, and I,
1: like I said, I totally understand seeing those numbers and thinking, oh my god, I can't afford that because it is scary and I'm totally not someone with extra income. Yeah, my, my creditors will tell you that for
0: sure yeah there's there seems to be at least i mean the little bit i've dipped my toe in the whole marketing thing i it seems like you've got free ads or really cheap ads and then there's this huge gulf of nothing and then the super expensive ads and not much in between
1: yeah well depending on how you are talking about cheap there is sort of some middle ground now um, the other thing I do every time I am planning a marketing campaign, because the, the, the uh, marketing sources do change, there is, and I t- couldn't tell you the URL, but if you Google paid author, which is the, the blog that puts it out every year, and um, Best marketing or marketing list something like that, it'll probably get you to, they put it out every year, so this year you'd want the 2019 best marketing. And they rank them, you know, they've tried all of them, is Mm. the thing, before they put it up there, if they have tried it, it's a group of authors, so there's, you know, a number of them can try it. Um, And they tell you, you know, what's hot, what's not, what's worth money. They don't really say, oh, this is a scam, but, you know, they endorse the ones that they think are are worthwhile, and some of them are like the $5 ones, and obviously you're getting less lift from the $5 one than you are from $200, but you can kind of budget it out. And what I do, um, what I've been doing for the last um, release, and for my last bigger releases, have been um, doing kind of scatter shots, so I'll, pick up one or two really big, expensive um, Book Butterfly is one I've used with some success. Um, Books Go Social is another one I just started trying and they're pricey, but I'm pretty pleased so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a, a number of ones that are $5, $10, 25 35 75 you know, in, in that range. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I first started this, I thought, well, I'm not going to pay more than $100, 150 I thought that that was putting out a lot of money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it is for me, but it's not, um, it's, it wasn't enough. Um, the thing to remember as an author breaking in and trying to build an audience is your Amazon is, is God right now. And if you can get, a huge. If you get your Amazon rankings high, and there's books and books because on oh, how to what goes into that, because and it changes all the time, and Amazon doesn't tell you exactly how they do the formulas, but there are some people who have done enough, who are better at math than I do, have done some crunched some numbers, and they figure they at least know sort of what's going into it. Um, but one of the biggest things is getting a huge lift in your sales. So it's worth it to drop your pri- you know, introductory price mm-hmm. and it's worth it to drop the money on advertising to-, to make those initial sales because then Amazon starts paying attention to you and then Amazon starts promoting you on their own. And that's what you really need to have happen and that's what I'm still really working toward mm-hmm. to get to that point where you know, you you're li- making a living at it, which I am nowhere near... <laughs> But, yeah, um, me
0: either. Still having hopes. Do you yeah. find the, um, do you do the the Amazon ads, though, kind of the keyword ads?
1: Um, I have. Um, a lot of people have, had good, have said that they had good luck with it. Um, I have not particularly, but I haven't tried it since I took Mark Dawson's course, and he had a lot of things to say about it um, that I might, go back and try in the future. Um, I've tried his advice on the Facebook ads and had a fair bit of luck with the Facebook ads with him, with, with using his advice. Um, again, it's, it's you know, it's, it's pricey, mm-hmm. but um, it's been worth it. I'm probably going to do Amazon ads a little bit because I did a whole lot of money, sunk a whole lot of money into this release with a number of different groups that do advertising and Help you with promotion, and with a new release, you really want to keep that energy going. So probably later in the month, um, if I can come up with the money, because that's you know the reality of it, I'll probably do some Facebook ads to support, you know, to keep the mm-hmm. keep the ball going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's the <laughs> one of the key pieces is keeping the momentum going. That's and that's yeah. why a lot of folks advocate having. You know a really aggressive publishing schedule, right? Like every three months, yes. you've got something new coming out, yes. um, and that's and w- that's a hard pace, yeah. yeah. And I wish I could,
1: I wish I could do that. Like I said, I was doing every six months, roughly for a while, um, and you know, I dropped off. I have seen, I mean, since this release has come out, it's lifted all my other books, um, so I'm really trying to commit to getting um, other books out, but it is hard when you have a day job. I mean, I've had some friends who are lucky enough. They have, you know, spousal support or a trust fund or, you know, money coming in somewhere that can, you know, either quit their job or go part-time to do this, but that's just not a reality for some people, and, you know, life happens. I mean, I've not only had the depression issues, but I've had total less, uh you know, 12, 15 months I've had Combiner <laughs> surgery. Mm. I've had two eye surgeries. Oh I've gosh. had, I just dis- dislocated my shoulder. And so, you know, that really impacts your finances and it impacts your writing schedule.
0: It absolutely <laughs> does. Do but good on you for keeping things rolling and keeping the momentum going in your new release. That's super exciting. Thank you. So, um, we're almost getting up on the hour, and I was hoping you could tell folks where they can find you on social media and keep up on all the buzz on your new work. Oh yeah, so I am pretty much all over, <laughs> mm.
1: except Instagram, and I'm getting a lot of pressure so I might do Instagram soon, um, but uh, Twitter, I'm just at Shauna Reppert, all one word, easy. Um, Facebook I have a uh, my personal Facebook is just again Shauna Reppert um, and I you know accept friend requests from anyone who's not obviously a fan bot or a creep or (laughs) um, a Trump follower (laughs) and um, I also have a fan group on Facebook Um, that's just for my you know it's a place my fans are encouraged to post things I might post things all there all the time as well but you know, to say I want to talk about the talks back and forth amongst themselves, or post raven pictures or wolf pictures because that's my thing, or things about Torian era costuming, whatever. Um, and that's a, a conspiracy of ravens because there's two collective novels, collective work nouns for ravens. One is unkindness, which I used in for a short story title, Unkindness of Ravens. Um, but uh, Conspiracy of Ravens is the other collective noun, so that's why I kind of call my fans my conspirators. Oh, that's I wonderful. Feel like my fans are on this journey, you know.
0: That's wonderful. I'd only known the Unkindness of Ravens, so I'm always fascinated to hear those collective nouns. Um, so that's a new one I'll have to add to my, my list. <laughs> well, that is <laughs> And wonderful. I also have a
1: professional author page on Facebook as well, and yeah.
0: That's good. So uh, pretty much, there's no excuse for not finding you on social media and hearing all about what's coming up for you. So it's very exciting. I can't wait to jump into the werewolf series. Um, it's on my short list of things to to catch up on. Um, I think I've got one book one book ahead, and then I'm jumping in. Um, and it's going to be um, a, a really fun journey, I think, to take uh, as a brand new to your series. I can't wait to see how this how this starts. So. Thanks for telling us all about it today and kind of giving us an opportunity to peek behind the curtain and see how you craft these wonderful stories. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, Again, be sure and follow Shauna on her social media and check out her latest series, The Werewolves and uh, Gaslamps Mystery Moon Over London. So thanks, everybody. This episode recorded at the Bigfoot headquarters. This has been a Swagamore Production Production.